church, good morning. And, uh, you know, it's Mother's Day. We always want to recognize our moms and we want to show appreciation if we can. And uh, it's, it's a good day to do that. And uh, I do want to remind you something, fellas. Uh, if you did mess up and uh, you forgot to get that woman something for Mother's Day, we got you covered. We do have some books out there at the ministry table, five bucks each. And so uh, the power of a praying wife. And so you can pick that thing up and say, honey, look what I got you for Mother's Day. So we want to keep you out of the doghouse. And uh, so we're thinking ahead for you. Okay. So I uh, just want to make sure that uh, you knew that we had a great time yesterday. Uh, the women had a tea here at two o'clock or so. And uh, the guys, uh, we tried to serve. We hit the plates most of the time. And, um, and did great, and uh, me and Jason Preston held down the table there and did our best with the vegetables, um, so we did it, all right? So, um, and um, we, we were allowed to eat afterwards, so that was our reward for doing that. So thank you all ladies for doing that, and for those who organized, I know uh, Shelly and Norma Jean did a great deal of work behind that, and so um, we're grateful for that time. Um, now, having done all of that, uh, we want to put our focus where it needs to be upon the Lord Jesus. Uh, we recognize our moms, appreciate them, but we worship Jesus here. And so we want to look at the scriptures this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you go to Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll talk about the mystery of Christ. Now, a mystery religion. We have those in our world. And mystery religions are centered on secret or mystical rites that are only for the initiated. And so you don't know those secrets unless uh, they decide to let you in, but they're kept from you. As a matter of fact, uh, those secrets are carefully guarded from the outside world. They're uh, reserved only for the insiders. And some of those uh, mystery religions even have serious penalties threatened if you were to reveal any of the secrets uh, to anyone outside of the group. And I would say to you, a Christian has no business being in any organization like that. We have a gospel that's to be declared. If you've got something that needs to be kept secret, you probably ought not be involved in it. Amen? Yeah, amen. Yeah, so you need, you know, that, that stuff is, is not of the Lord, okay? So you want to, you I don't care how many times they say God, they don't know what God they're talking about. So those mystery religions and even like Gnosticism is still alive in some parts of the world. And so there's a secret knowledge, and you realize that we have that going on in America right now, that uh, there's a secret knowledge that some groups can understand what racism is, and the rest of us can't. Secret knowledge that's a, that they have, you know, that nobody else can have, and so it's very interesting. But here in Ephesians chapter 3, we have Paul using the word mystery three times in the verses that we're going to consider today. And so is Christianity then a a mystery religion? Is it mystical and that is some kind of system that can't be explained and we just have to sort of accept it as, as real but never really understanding what God means uh, by the mystery of God and the mystery of Christ? No, what this really means is that when Paul uses the word mystery here, he means that this is the plan of God. And though this plan is, and purpose has been described throughout uh, biblical history and in the Bible, it was never fully explained and applied until now. 
It's something that has always been there. God has talked about it. He hasn't decided to keep people from knowing. But he's progressively revealed that mystery. The mystery of Christ. Now, this mystery is costly to Paul. That what he's going to declare to the world costs him his life. And so his responsibility was to explain it. And so now in this section of Ephesians, he explains it to us and he reveals to us how it was revealed to him and what it really means. He doesn't want us to be in the dark about the mystery of Christ. He wants us to know full well what it is. If it's good news, we need to know it, right? And so he wants us to know. So here we have the mystery of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And the first aspect of this we notice is in verse 1. Paul's incarceration for the mystery of Christ. Now look in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I, Paul, he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul starts with this thing. He starts with this phrase, for this reason. And now Paul does something next that drives expositors and preachers crazy. He doesn't finish that. He starts with for this reason and then he goes off on a tangent. And then if you'll notice in verse 14 of your Bible, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He picks his thought back up there. So when you're trying to, you know, preach this, you're like, what is this man talking about? And so um, that's Paul. He does that a lot. And, And Paul's not worried about writing formally here. He's just trying to tell us what he wants to tell us and and so the the indication here is that when he says I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles and he pauses there he realizes that what he just said may have caused a great deal of grief or even guilt on the Ephesian believers Paul's in jail because of us if it wasn't for us he wouldn't be there and Paul's like what no 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 wait wait a minute that's not it I'll get back to that in just a minute let me tell you the reason I'm in prison. I'm in prison for the mystery of Christ. That's why I'm in prison. It, I did preach on, on, for your sake, I preached the mystery of Christ. But I'm not arrested because of preaching in Ephesus. I'm arrested because I preached the mystery of Christ. So you can just rest on that. But if I'm in prison for this purpose, this must be an extremely important thing. So I want you to pay attention, he's saying to them. And so that's when he jumps in here. Now, look, look at this. He talks about his incarceration. I'm in prison, he said. And I'm a prisoner by the will of Christ. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And so Christ Jesus is the originating cause of Paul's imprisonment. We call that the genitive of origination, by the way. So you can know what your prepositions are for those of you that are studying your Greek now. Paul was not a prisoner of Caesar. Even though he'd been arrested by Rome, he's not a prisoner of Caesar. He's in prison because his life had been captured by King Jesus. And therefore, he would spend the rest of his life doing exactly what Christ had said. Jesus had promised Paul from his conversion. Remember what he said to Ananias at Paul's baptism? He told Ananias, tell Paul the great things he must suffer for my sake. Paul signed up for it. Suffering 
for the sake of Christ was promised. Hardship, suffering, and even death was promised to Paul. And Jesus keeps his promises, does he not? All of this was coming to pass just like Christ had said in Acts chapter 9 verses 15 through 16. So Paul's not stressing at all. Here he is in prison. He's not stressing. And he's saying to them, the reason I'm here is because I'm incarcerated to Jesus. I'm bound to him. I'm chained to Christ. There is no other place for me to go. I have given my life totally and wholly over to him. I am his servant. Where he sends me, I go. What he tells me to say, I say. How he tells me to live, I live. And that's the reason I'm in prison. That's the reason I'm bound. And the question would circle back around to me and to you. Each one of you. And here's the question. Are you a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Are you so bound to him? Are you so captured by him? Do you so belong to him that you are his servant with unquestioning obedience? If you are, then let me assure you, let me give you some comfort If your king has suffered for the sake of the mission, do not expect that you will not. There is a cost for serving him. This world is not conducive to serving King Jesus. This world is not set up. Society is not designed to applaud you as you run for the sake of Christ. This society is built to throw rocks at you and insults at you and try to trip you up and try to make you fail and to make fun of you when you do. It's constructed in that way. We only have two choices in life. We're either a slave to this world system or we're a slave to Christ. Those are the only two choices. And my question to you again would be this. Are you... A slave of Jesus Christ. Are you captured by him? Are you incarcerated by Christ? And you do nothing. You go nowhere. You do not one single thing without being directed by him. That's the question for us. Paul was a prisoner by the will of Christ. He was a prisoner for the work of Christ. Look what he said. On behalf of you Gentiles. Paul's, remember Paul's a Jew. Staunch Jew. A trained Jew. Paul has the equivalent of a PhD and a law degree. And what does God do? Sends him to the dregs of society. Paul's skills would have been much more suited to a courtroom. Right? It would have been much more suited. He was of the Pharisee class. He's much more Suited to be part of the Sanhedrin where they decide the use of the law. That was what Paul was trained to do. But what God did was send him to the lawless people. The ones who are without the scripture. And Paul's particular assignment was to announce the good news of Jesus to the non-Jew. The barbarians. Which is us. We were the crazies in those days, by the way, white people. We were the ones on National Geographic in those days. Things we would eat, 
things we would do. Horrifying. National Geographic, the Discovery Channel would be making films about us. And Paul was sent to people like us. Now Paul also talked to and preached to the Jews wherever he went. You notice he always go to the synagogue first. And so he would, he would preach there. But Paul was the one who broke this ethnic barrier and took the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jewish thought was the gospel would only go to those who are ethnically Jews because those people had been chosen by God nationally. And so they assumed that that meant that God had chosen them for eternity, which is not true. God was not interested in building a nation. From the very beginning, God was interested in building the church. So those of you who get stuck on Israel as if Israel is all in all, it's not all in all. The church is all in all. The Jews are invited to be part of the church through Christ and Christ alone. They can't get there through Moses. They can't get there through ethnicity. They can't get there by being related to Abraham physically. They have to be related to Abraham spiritually by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's no other way. And Paul was preaching this. He was saying, and the Gentiles, they are part of this new creation. They are an equal part of this new humanity that Christ is building. They're an equal part. And that's what got him in trouble. That's what caused the Jews to bristle. Wait a minute. We're the special ones. We have an inside track here. Who are you, Paul? To invite those kinds of people into our group. Sound familiar? May God have mercy on a church that would have that attitude toward people. The gospel to the Gentiles to be received on equal terms with the Jews. And boy, that's what caused Paul so much grief. That's what causes any Christian grief. I make a point to fraternize with the nobodies. Yeah. If you're somebody, you don't need anybody. But if you're a nobody, you need somebody. And that's what our Lord would model. Never, never, never look at someone as a good prospect for our church. No. Every person is a prospect for the gospel. That's how we look at people. And that's how we're going to look at people here. You say, well, y'all uh, the rich church. Yeah, there are two of us. And I'm not in that group, so it's down to one. No, we're not. No, we're not. Do, do you know how the bills are paid here? By hard-working, working-class people. That's how they're paid. Why, why? How do they do that? Because they love Christ. They've got a hold of the gospel. That's how it works. That's what God does. His incarceration for the mystery of Christ. That's what he's in prison for. Now, his obligation. What is, what is Paul obligated to do? His obligation to the mystery of Christ is in verse 2. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
And so he's telling us here he's obligated in this way. What's he obligated to do? He's obligated to fill his assignment, fulfill his assignment. What? Of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Now, let me deal with something here very uh, briefly. And uh, I hammer on this often because it's been hammered into your brain for so many years. And so I, I want to help us maybe uh, not, you know, just knock a little of that away so we can understand the Bible a lot better. Um, some of us uh, may be carrying a translation that has translated uh, oikonomia as dispensation. The word dispensation. So I've used the English word dispensation. And so then they've taken, people have taken that word dispensation and snatched it out of its context and tried to construct a system of belief that actually contradicts what we just preached last Sunday from chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. It's called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is a man-made system of interpreting the scripture that leads to grave error. And so... Some of you it just I, I can feel you like you you know yeah you know you, you you know some beloved preacher of days gone by did the best he could and and bought into all of that and taught that to you, and so now you're you're fully convinced that the Jews have one way of salvation, Gentiles have a different way. The church is kind of an interruption of all of that, but what God is really about is trying to get the nation of Israel saved. That's what his real plan is. And so the, the church is kind of an interruption of that because the Jews didn't want the kingdom of heaven. So now God invented the church and we got that going on for a while. But then we're going to get that out of the way and God's going to get back to what he really wanted to do. And that is get the nation of Israel. That's your theology and it's in error. And the reason you have that is because somebody has taken this word, this Greek word, oikonomia, and they have translated dispensation, and they've taken the word dispensation, and they've built this system of belief based upon that idea. The problem is, this word is best translated, if you look at it, oiko is house. Namas is law or rule. It means rules of the house. Another way to say it would be management, household management. If you have your ESV Bible, they have translated as stewardship. That's a good translation. So what, what Paul has been given here is he's been given an assignment. And his assignment is the oversight of getting the grace of the gospel to the Gentiles. He's the man. He's the one appointed to oversee this and to distribute and dispense the gospel, that is the rule that he lives under. He has been given management of this. The word here means he's entrusted with management of the message of the grace of Christ to the Gentiles. That's what it really means. God has given him that gift. Though possession of it would cost him dearly. God had give, gave me a gift once. That I would be the one to get the first church of a people group ever in their history. That was a gift. The, great, the gift of grace. I didn't cause it. He causes it. But you're there as a tool. It's a grace gift. Some of you, God was going to give you the stewardship of the gospel for your family. You've been given that stewardship. You now have the grace of God in your hands to declare to your family. To teach your children in the ways of the Lord. 
to declare to your extended family this is how people come to Christ? To declare to others in your workplace or people that you know as God gives you the opportunity? You also have been given a stewardship. You've been given, given management in the household of God over a segment of this grace, the grace of the gospel of Jesus that you get to give to other people. Paul had the oversight of the public announcement of the whole thing to the Gentile world. And we don't get that, right? But he had that oversight of how the Gentiles would get the gospel and be partakers of the promise of the Messiah. But each one of us has been given some oversight, some management of the gospel. It's in your hands. How are you going to manage it? You've been given stewardship. You don't own it. But you are a person in the place of the owner that is taking that and using it and distributing it according to his will. How are you using that? Paul said he was obligated to fulfill his assignment and so are we. If we're prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ, then when he lets us out on weekend pass, we better be doing what he says. Do what he tells What are we? He's given us stewardship. Look, I'm going to put this in your hands now. I think it's the scariest plan I've ever heard. That, that God is going to take the message of the grace of the gospel of Jesus and place it in the hands of his people like this. And say, this is going to work. I, I imagine when Satan kind of realized God's plan, he probably started laughing and goes, it ain't going to work. I know these people. It ain't going to work. But God is still doing it. He's still, do, he's still doing that very thing. We, we, we don't have to reinvent this. We don't have to do anything spectacular. We don't have to do that. We just have to be the people of God. And realize we've been given a stewardship. We've been given management of the gospel of grace. We're managing that. What are we going to do with it now? Where are we going to distribute it? Who are we going to hand it off to? That's in our hands now. And that's what Paul was, had in his hands for all the Gentiles. We don't have it in that way, but... We do have it in the realm of the people we have influence over, don't we? That's, that's where we got it. See, many of you think like evangelism is this. Now, let's all meet here at the church. And the pastor is going to give you an assignment to go talk to Bubba about Jesus. Now, I want you to go over there and drag him out of the bar, pin him against a tree, and give him the gospel. You think that's what evangelism is. Now, for we do have some people in our church that are almost that edgy. And I know who you are. But honestly, really, what is your stewardship? What is your area of management? If you're the manager of McDonald's over on Western Avenue, you're not also the manager of Taco Bell. That's somebody else. So you got to get figured out. I have management of the gospel. Where does God want me to distribute that? Where does that go from me? Where does it go? And you have to manage that. Paul said he was obligated to focus on his audience. What was his audience? He said here, it's for you. Stewardship of the grace, of God's grace was given to me for you, for your sake. The target audience for Paul was the Gentile world, not the non uh, not the Jews, that wasn't his target. Even though he preached the Jews, they had a chance. But his target was the non-Jew. We don't, again, we don't reinvent what Paul has already done, but we do continue that ministry 
and we continue the stewardship of the gospel, we're under obligation as well. Here, we, so one of the things that we do, it's not all that we do, all we should do, but we, we raise a significant amount of money to plant churches and start churches in North America and around the world. We do that every year. And so why, why do we do that? Why is that such an important part? Because it's stewardship. That's stewardship. We have the grace of God entrusted to us. Now, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to keep it to ourselves? Something that we didn't earn ourselves, but we're going to keep it to ourselves as if we own it? No, it belongs to Jesus. The gospel belongs to Jesus. We're just managers, and so we take that and say, hey, management would be, let's get this there, let's get this there. That's the best management that we can come up with. So he has an obligation to the mystery of Christ. Now, look at his revelation of the mystery of Christ. Listen, you're not going to beat the Methodist mamas to the restaurant today. So just go ahead and mark it off your list. You can be like the next shift that comes in. Okay, so they're all, man, they're done. Look, they're done. They're at Roadhouse already. Okay, so you can just relax now. It's too late. It's too late, children. Now, his revelation, I I will not linger. We'll we'll go. Okay, so his revelation of the mystery of Christ. Look at verses 3 through 6. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So look at this. The origination of the mystery in verse 3. It's revealed by God. The mystery of God was made known to me by revelation. How did Paul know this? The mystery of God. By revelation, God. And then look at it. It's written, though. He says, as I have written briefly. How do we know the revelation of God? Because Paul has written it. We are not apostles that stand in that position to receive direct revelation. Sarah Young can't do it. Throw her book away. Joyce Meyer can't do it. Throw her books away. These people like Jesus told me, no, throw their books away. They don't have direct revelation. Well, I have the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God should be telling you to read the Bible. The Holy Spirit has written. Read it. He will help you understand it. But these people are so lazy that they won't study the Scriptures. They've set them to the side. And like, well, God is just telling me this or that and the other. I'm like, no, he's not. You're a nutcase. Pastor, that's not polite. No, those people are crazies. Quit following those people. Why do you do that? Because it's more fun to read about a a hummingbird that points you to Jesus than it is to read the Bible? Is that what it is? Butterflies, hummingbirds, power sticks, whatever it is, that stuff they do. It's just nutcase. So don't. Pastor, you're the only one saying this. Everybody else. We don't look for direct revelation. I'm not out here wandering around hoping God will give me a message to give to you. Dear God, we're, we're going to the scriptures here. This is, this is what God has said. This is what we're doing. So we go to the, this is not a mystery. It's not. It's, it, this is it. And so we just, this is what scripture says. We tell that again because this is what's been revealed to the apostles and prophets. So this is what we do. So the origination is from God. We teach sound, healthy, accurate doctrine that Paul has written. We study it, 
we teach it, we preach it, we obey it. It's what's written. That's what we do. And if we have an argument, we can open the scriptures up, look at the scriptures and say, okay, let's deal with this. What is God saying to us? The origination of the mystery, it's from God. The interpretation of the mystery, he gives that in verses 4 and 5. Now he talks about foundational insight in the past, if you skip down to verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, there are people that, that have messed up their interpretation here because in verse 5 they stop, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. They just stop there. See, they didn't know in the Old Testament about Jesus. That's very clear, they say. The problem is they didn't finish reading, as it has now been revealed. Not to the measure that's been revealed is what that's saying. Not in the same measure that's revealed now. It's not saying wasn't revealed at all. That's not what it's saying. Those who were rightly related to God through Christ understood what they were saying, what they were reading. David, when he was writing about the resurrection of Christ, he wasn't in a trance. He knew what he was saying. Isaiah was talking about the suffering servant dying on the cross. He knew what he was saying. These people are not nutty. So here we have in the past there was the foundational part. It doesn't say they didn't know anything. How do you prove that, Pastor? Well, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Old Testament prophets were searching for Christ. Where? What time? How's it going to be? How's this going to work? So it's not new. The gospel's not new. But what we do find is that it is more clearly revealed. Here's just something that's going to help you now when you're reading the scripture. The principle of progressive revelation. God reveals it little by little through the scripture. He doesn't reveal it all at once in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, it's progressively revealed. And so step by step you see that it's opening up. You see the covenant of grace coming to light in the Old Testament and then fully in Christ when he arrived. You see, there it is. That's what they were looking for. So foundational insight in the past. That's how you interpret it. Foundationally, in the, when you're reading the Old Testament, it's foundational. But then you have the fuller insight in the present. Paul talks about you can perceive my insight when you read this. And then he talks about the others, the, the holy apostles and the prophets. They, it was revealed to them by the Spirit. Obviously, Paul was given a fuller understanding of the mystery. Then you have the explanation of the mystery. What is the mystery then? And, and we don't have to guess. Isn't it good? The Bible just tells you flat out. Verse 6 tells you this is the mystery. The mystery is, see you got that, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, not through Judaism, but through the gospel. Through the gospel. If the Jews want to get to Jesus, it's through the gospel. If the Gentiles get to Jesus, it's through the gospel. It's always through the gospel. There's no other way. It's through the gospel of Jesus. That's the way. And so obviously here we have this mystery. It's not merely this. It's not just. The mystery is not just that the Gentiles are going to be saved by faith in Christ. The mystery also includes this astounding idea that God would make something totally new. That he had been driving all along toward this one thing. 
And that is what Jesus announced. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what God has been building all through history. God has not been worried about building some little nation on a little piece of dirt somewhere on the Mediterranean Sea. That is not God's agenda. God's agenda is to build for himself a people, a holy people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that they may declare the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is what God has been building. Building a people that he will be their God and they will be his people. They will belong to each other for all of eternity. That is what God is building. And it is composed of people of all ethnicities, anyone, everywhere, who will trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what he's building. And so here we have Paul saying, that is it. And the Jews were like, oh my goodness. And they lose their minds over this. What? We're not the only ones. I thought we had the market cornered on God. I thought we had him housed in a little building. He couldn't get out. I I thought we we could collect from people to come like on journeys and and tourist stuff and come to the temple and observe God. And we're making money hand hand over fist on this stuff. What in the world? Paul, you're going to take all this away from us. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because God cannot be contained in a house built by human hands. God is not owned by any ethnicity. God is not beholden to anybody. God is not in debt to a single person. God does what God does, and God does as he pleases and as he wills. That's the message that Paul has given them here. And if you want to come to God, you'll have to come to God like Abraham did, that he was justified by faith. That's how you'll have to come. And so here we have that Jesus, he has opened the door for for all people to come to him. Otherwise, if it weren't for Christ, the Gentiles would have to become Jews in order to get to God. And if you have to become Jewish in order to get to God, Christ died in vain. If, if, the, if the law of Moses is the way to get right with God, then Christ had no reason to come. But the law has never saved anyone. Moses was not saved by the law he written, he, that he wrote himself. Moses didn't get saved that way. How did Moses get saved? Moses said, listen, there's one coming after me that's greater than me. And if you don't listen to him, you will be cast out from among God's people. Moses, the the Bible says of Moses that he forsook the riches of Egypt to gain the glory of Christ. Not to get a piece. He never even set foot in Israel. It wasn't for that. Abraham, he wasn't looking for a a great country that he could own and have his own. The Bible tells us that he never even built his house in Canaan. He didn't even bother. He just lived out of his tent. Why? Because he realized something. This dirt here and all of this stuff, it's a symbol. It points to something greater. A city whose builder and maker is God. That's what Abraham was aiming for. And that's what we do as well. Our our goal is not to make America great again. Our goal is to get the gospel of grace to America. That's our goal. Now what do we do here? What, What do we do with this? One, 
is, is this. Don't preach a deficient gospel. <laughs> you know, as, of all things, don't preach a deficient gospel. Don't, don't preach something that, that says that there are two ways to get to God or three or five. There's only one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jew or Gentile. Nobody. He's the only way. So don't preach anything other than that. Don't have a theology that opens the door for some kind of works salvation for people. Don't do it. Just don't do it. That's an affront to God. And it's dismissing the cross of Christ as not a necessity for all people. So don't, don't go down that road. Some good people can be mistaken. It might have sold books, but it is bad theology. Let sound doctrine unify you with other believers. Sound doctrine. The essentials. Let that unite you with other people. Rather than seeking to build some kind of frail, fragile human unity by disposing of truth. I would rather be disunified because of truth than to be unified around falsehood. I'm not looking at this whole ecumenical movement thing. Well, I've got to be one. Can I just witness? No, you're giving the wrong gospel to people. You're saying, oh, we're okay with their gospel. I'm not okay with it. I'm not okay with that. When, when people start denying blood of Christ and they're not even going to, they care nothing for substitutionary atonement anymore and we're not justified by faith, those, those people, they're off, they're off in left field. I don't, they can label themselves whatever they want, but God's not labeling them that. Self-identifying as a Christian doesn't make you one. So we want to preach and teach the gospel. Now here's the other thing, one other thing. Maybe, maybe you're the person here and you've been thinking to yourself, I'm trying my best to be a good Christian so that God will accept me. May I say to you, that's a lie of Satan. Number one, you're not a pretty good Christian, you never will be. First of all, none righteous, no not one, no one seeks God. They've all gone astray. They've all turned aside. Nobody. So if you're thinking that way, you've got to stop that. What, What is driving that? It's human pride that drives that. So you've got to realize that's a trick of Satan, and it's a trick of your own sinful heart. And you've got to come to this place where you, you say, I, I, I don't have anything to give to God. I have nothing to offer. There is nothing in me or about me that would cause God to say, I need to save that one. It's a good one. There's nothing in you. No good people go to heaven. None. They're all bad. All sinners. Every one of them that ever go to heaven. How do you get there? You embrace the fact that you're sinful by nature, by choice. You have a rebellious heart. You want to do things your own way. You don't want God's interference. You're rebel against Him. You just don't want it. You've been rebellious. You've been pushing God away your whole life. And you've got to recognize that about yourself and come to, you get, first of all, before you come to Jesus, you've got to come to self. And you come to yourself and you realize, man, I'm, I'm living with the pigs. I, I'm, I, my father, my father is a king. And here I am, wallowing around in the mud of sin. What person in their right mind is going to keep doing that? And you get up, you don't dust yourself off, you don't clean yourself up. You come with the smell of pigs on you to the cross. 
And you say, Christ, I have nothing to offer you, but I will grab hold of all that you offer to me. You have died in my place. You have taken the judgment of heaven for me. I take it as my own. I stand before God justified, not because of my works, but because of yours. I trust in that and that alone. My confidence is all in Jesus and none in myself. And when you come to him on that term, believing in his resurrection, that now he has the right to be king over your life, and you surrender that over to him, guess what he says? You will be saved. You'll be rescued. That's how you're rescued. That's how it works. That's the real gospel. That's the mystery of Christ. That's it. And so if you've been trying to do it the other way, I'm going to say to you, drop it. Just drop it today. We'll give you an invitation moment here in just a minute. I'm telling you, if I were you, I wouldn't debate. I wouldn't procrastinate. I wouldn't deliberate. I would run. I would, I would literally run down the aisle to get to Christ. And so you come. We'll help you know this is how you trust on Christ. This is how you give your life over to Christ. He will do all the saving. But you've got to do the surrendering. And we'll tell you how to do that. So if that's what you need today, we want you to come while we're singing here in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the everlasting gospel. Something that is surprising in a lot of ways. Lord, who would, who would have ever thought that the God that we've offended would come and die in our place? The God who demanded payment for our sin would come and pay the price himself on our behalf. Who would have ever thought? Lord, we thank you so much for the glory of the gospel. We thank you for our Savior who willingly suffered in the place of sinners. Now, Lord, for those that you would choose to call today, I pray, God, that you would make that calling upon their heart so irresistibly delightful that they would do nothing but say yes to Jesus today. And I pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.